0: Thanks to Delupa for sponsoring this season of Compounders. Delupa scales the velocity of an investment team's idea generation by allowing analysts to spend less time locating and manually inputting meaningful disclosures into Excel. As someone who spends a lot of time updating models with data that some of the other major platforms, such as Bloomberg and Capital IQ, don't capture, I have seen firsthand how much time Delupa can save professional investors. Specifically, Delupa captures data from all company-reported sources, including from footnotes, MD&As, and investor presentations. Their data sheets also include gap to non-gap adjustments, guidance, and all company specific KPIs. Each data point is auditable to the source for easy verification and accuracy. Delupa's Excel plugin can also update existing models for the latest quarter in just a single click. More bulge bracket banks and top tier investment managers are trusting Delupa for assistance in initiating coverage building and maintaining industry dashboards, and keeping models up to date. Please visit www.dalupa.com compounders to learn more about how DeLupa can help increase your team's speed to differentiated insight. Welcome to the Compounders podcast. On this show, we explore the topic of compounding from various angles including through interviews with public and private company executives, investors who focus on compounders, and newer investment firms that are building a business they hope will become more valuable over time. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of SNN or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not investment advice and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending the purchase or sale of any securities, the host and guests may be beneficial owners of the securities discussed. You should not assume that the securities discussed are or will be profitable. My guest on the show today is Jeremy Cokemore, the founder of Tail Capital. After several buy-side stints, including at T. Rowe Price, Jeremy founded Righttail in 2022. Jeremy runs a concentrated portfolio of high-quality companies that just happen to be trading at large discounts to intrinsic value. In this wide-ranging conversation, we discussed why he decided on the name Righttail, his definition of a quality company, what concentration means to Jeremy and how that translates to position sizing, the ways in which he has intentionally created alignment between himself and his investors, and stocks that have taught him lessons and served as mentors. And without any further ado, here's my conversation with Righttail Capital's Jeremy Coking. I'm interested in the name you chose, Tail Capital. Can you talk about what that name symbolizes to you? Sure,
1: sure. Um, so Ben, when I was thinking about potentially, you know, naming uh, this investment firm, Right Tail Capital was the one name that really jumped out to me and really resonated. And there were really four parts that that kind of uh, four types of meaning that that the name kind of symbolized for me. First and foremost, I really want Right Tails after-tax returns to be incredible and and to be great for our investors, or to be in the right tail. Uh, Secondly, I'm typically going to be investing in companies that are higher quality and I would say have proven themselves to be in the right tail, both relative to their peers and their industry group and oftentimes to just companies at large. And then there were two personal reasons uh, that the name right tail really jumped out to me. First and foremost is I love the whole process of how do we all get a little bit better over time? and that knowledge and that experience can just compound the same way we want our wealth and and our investment returns to do. And so whether it's investing, whether it's things like health, whether it's, you know, kind of general reading and knowledge, I love that process of trying to get a little bit better each day and recognize what a big impact that can have over time. And then the last reason was just that I didn't grow up uh, with much. I grew up in New Orleans. I was the oldest of three kids and my parents got divorced when I was five or six. And uh, I really felt the financial strains of our family over time and always had jobs when I was young, helping to teach math in middle school and then doing the work study program in high school and financing my college education. And so I say these things just that, the opportunity to help improve someone else's financial outcomes and to generate further wealth is just something that I take really seriously. So um, those were the four reasons why the name Right Tail uh, really appealed to me.
0: So we kind of went backwards. We started with the name and now we're going to start about, talk about the founding story. So you started the firm in 2022. Can you discuss the spark that led you to found Right Tail and you know, go out on your own to try to, to build your own firm?
1: Sure. So it's been a a long-term dream of mine, even going back to writing one of my business school essays in 2007 before I went to Harvard Business School, that one day I might want to start an investment firm. And in early 2022, there were just several stars that kind of aligned where it kind of seemed like now was a great time to try to fulfill this dream. Uh, First and foremost, we have Three beautiful children. You know, thankfully, they're all healthy. They're they're all doing well in school, and we've kind of been able to see, you know, just just that they were doing that they were doing well in school. Um, secondly, uh, my wife was interested in going back to work after doing a great job of kind of raising our family. Um, third, we had kind of saved up, uh, you know, enough enough money where we thought we could, you know, appropriately invest alongside. All of our other right tail investors, and really create great alignment, uh, while also uh, giving the business strong enough duration to really show what we could do on the investment side. Um, so, so there are all these there are all these factors that kind of came together early last year. Um, and then I would just add to that that you know I'm I'm in my early 40s, and I felt like. Um, I had the right mix of energy I love I love investing I love learning. I want to do this hopefully for another four decades and think that I'll be investing for as long as I can still think soundly. Um, and then secondly, um, uh, a, a great amount of experience as well to kind of share with other with other folks and to share that energy and that passion and that experience and so um, you know anytime, uh you make a big decision potentially one like starting an investment firm uh there's there's probably not you know not for most of us will there be someone who kind of you know knocks on your door with an answer key and a pot of gold and says you know hey you should do this right now uh but those were the reasons why it really felt like the ideal time uh, for me to found right so
0: in that response, you mentioned alignment, and in your investor presentation, you talk about setting up a structure where you are aligned with your investors. Can you talk about the mechanisms you've employed to ensure that alignment?
1: Sure, sure. Uh, so uh, first is you know one that we've already mentioned, which is uh, our family has a significant alignment with all of Right investors. So we'll uh, we'll win together when times are tougher. We'll suffer together. Uh, but I want everybody to know that I'm right there with you uh, through it all, and to me, that's just the way that that it should be. Um, and so today, um, my wife and I are—you uh, know—will likely always be Right Tail's largest investor in terms of percentage of net worth. Today, we also happen to be the largest investor in terms of dollars as well. Um, you know. Secondly, in terms of alignment, I you know spent a lot of time thinking about what, what is kind of a fair and well-aligned fee structure. And I've always respected and been enamored by uh, the fee structure from Warren Buffett's original partnerships in the 50s and 60s. And so one of rightdale's fee structures is um, a no management fee, all performance fee, which is uh, 25% over a 6% hard hurdle. Uh, and so that was that was another way uh, that I felt really created alignment, uh, you know, with with all of our investors. I do also offer a management fee only um, structure just to kind of provide folks with a choice. And um, yeah, you know, I've been amazed just that you know a lot of uh, a lot of us just have different preferences, and and I want each investor to be happiness happiest. And then you know other ways that I create alignment. You know, one um, I've I've kept costs uh, you know appropriate, uh, but but I would also say low for for the business side. And to me, that helps further create alignment because I want each investor to know that I'm not I'm not worrying about you know the the P of the business. I'm focusing as much as possible on long-term excellent investment results and so um keeping costs you know low and sufficient is kind of you know one of the many things that i do to just kind of um make sure that i'm in kind of the healthiest and kind of right mindset uh to encourage this type of long-term thinking um that that i think will will ultimately lead to
0: some great investment success for retail this season of compounders is sponsored by Deluba. Delupa was founded by a former hedge fund analyst to bring simplicity to the investment process. Delupa offers an AI-driven single source for all company-reported data and allows for investment teams to make the most informed decisions in the shortest amount of time. For more information, please visit delupa.com/slash-compounders. Great, and so maybe we can jump in now to the, the investing side. I talked about the structure and the alignment and the and the and the, the you know the founding story. So I, I generally hate to put people in style boxes because the growth in value labels miss a lot of nuance. But having said that, when people ask you to define your style, how would you describe it like where do you where do you place yourself in the in in the you know whatever when you're talking to a potential client or an allocator like what where do you put yourself in that in the traditional boxes? Sure,
1: sure. and I agree with you
0: Ben. Uh,
1: i'm I'm not a big fan of the boxes either because I I think about, you know, I think Buffett talked about this in some of his letters in the early 1990s about, you know, just the importance of value and growth. And that understanding growth is paramount to assessing a company's value. And I would always, you know, candidly just kind of struggle with those questions during, you know, interviews years ago and things like that, because oftentimes I I just, you know, I kind of wanted to say, I'm not exactly sure, I don't know. Uh, But the simplest way I would describe it is to say that I want to buy high quality businesses um, at as reasonable of a price as possible. Um, If I have to pick one over the other, um, I'm often going to lean towards quality. And the way I tend to think about quality um, is that I would love for companies to have a long reinvestment runway. um, And there are a lot of Factors that kind of go into that of you know okay well what what gives this company a long reinvestment runway and what advantages does this company have, and then secondly to be able to invest at high incremental returns. So so number one long reinvestment runway. Two, we want that reinvestment to be done at as high of a rate uh, of return as possible. Um, and you know those companies if you. Buy them at a reasonable price can really create create a lot of value for shareholders over time.
0: Something I've thought a lot about, you know, is that incremental returns and then the, and then also the runway associated with that. What do you think the markers are of a business that has that runway? Like if you were to categorize a generic, or even use an example if you want, but some kind of like I I look at this situation and I can. To the the best of my ability, forecast a pretty long period for for reinvestment. What 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 does that look like? What what kind of factors contribute to that?
1: Sure, um, you know it's it may be different, you know, on a case by case basis. But you know, I'll just share a few examples that come to mind. Um, you know, so one might be a company like O'Reilly Auto Parts, where. Uh, you know, I would say part of their reinvestment has been continuing to open new stores and kind of slowly taking share uh, from mom and pop competitors, among others. Uh, so that would be one way for a company that maybe has uh, a retail component to it. Um, you know, another example might be um, a home building company like NVR, where uh, over time they have built higher market shares in local markets, but, you know, in the grand scheme of things, I would say still has a pretty low market share um, across the whole country. So if you kind of believe that the company will continue to take share from others in the markets that they're in um, and potentially enter new markets and and wisely grow those businesses over time, uh, the way that they've always done. Um, again, because of that lower market share and the great processes and great business model they have in place, uh, those are a couple things that give me comfort that there's a longer reinvestment runway there.
0: And you know, just just to satisfy the compliance side of this, you own both of those securities?
1: I do own both of those securities
0: today. Got it. Okay. And so interesting, you didn't mention like a, a a rapidly increasing TAM, which I think is people, people mostly think about a reinvestment reinv- run rate. They think of a TAM that's expanding. I don't know how much the auto, you know, auto repair, auto parts world is, is expanding rapidly. It's more like a share gain. Both of those are kind of share gain experience, um, kind of examples. What, how does, how does the importance of a market that's getting larger over time, how does, how does that factor into the quality assessment in your mind? Sure.
1: Yeah, I would say both of those companies, in my opinion, do have a market that is expanding. Although I completely hear your point that um, the, the, the addressable markets may not be expanding as rapidly as as other examples that that you and I could think of. Um, but, yeah, I would absolutely love for a market to be getting bigger versus getting smaller. And if a company already has competitive advantages, then. Um, you know, having a bit of a further industry tailwind should only help uh, going forward.
0: And you talk about trying to buy these quality businesses when they trade at very undervalued prices. So are you looking to buy companies with short-term clouds hanging over them? Or are you focused more on companies that can simply compound faster than people are expecting?
1: Sure. I would say uh, there there are two ways I think about that. One is um, you know, I absolutely research a lot of businesses that do have a shorter term cloud hanging over them. A lot of times, I you know may decide to pass or may realize I need to continue to study the business over time., uh, but that is one fruitful area. another another area, you know, would be, um, you know, i I, I would maybe want to add a bit of of nuance uh, to the way to the way you frame the question, which is just that, Oftentimes, I might find a company where the reinvestment runway seems to be there, um, at least as judged by history. The incremental returns on capital, maybe over the last 10 or 15 years, has been really strong. And I think this company will continue to have a competitive advantage and whatnot. And so sometimes you can find these companies, and who knows, maybe in a typical year, they grow earnings at 10 to 15% per year. And maybe you can buy this company at a discount to the average company, you know, in the S and P five hundred or or something like that. And so, in those cases, I'm not necessarily taking the view that I think the company is going to grow a lot faster than maybe the market thinks. Um, and so, I'm I'm typically not going to be you know buying a company where maybe the market thinks it can grow at thirty percent per year and I come out with a different view and I'm like, no, I think that 30 is actually 50. That's, that's probably not something I'm going to do, but there will certainly be times where I might take a different view and say, gosh, I think this is a much better business and this company can grow in a much more capital light fashion um, or higher return fashion than what I think the market kind of appreciates today. And so that's, that's kind of how I would, um, you know, frame that, that second part of your question. So A, either, either high quality companies with a near term issue or B, you know, companies that, you know, are just steadily doing really, really well, where maybe the market underappreciates just how good that company is or what
0: makes it special. When you say you study a lot of businesses, um, makes me think of, creating an investment universe of, of of quality companies. Is that something you've done? Have you narrowed the universe of companies down to like a couple hundred that you'd like to own and you do work on them beforehand so that, you know, when the market hands you opportunities um, to buy them, then you can, or is it not quite that formulaic?
1: I think of it a bit more like I'm constantly building uh, the library of companies that I might invest in. And, you know, so this year, for instance, there have been five or so industries that I've spent a lot of time studying. Um, I haven't made a big kind of new investment position this year so far, but I feel like the work's been really good and it's kind of broadened out that universe or that library um, so that when the time does come and it could either be... Um, related to valuation, or the company's stock price, or maybe even a downturn in the market, then I'll be prepared and and hopefully have that that knowledge to be ready to act. Um, It also could be as I build a library that you know, I found over time that I may not understand, you know, every nuance that makes the company special the first time I study it. And and so that that knowledge kind of compounds over time, uh, each time as I studied the business. Um, and you know, one of the times I can think of when I was most active in the portfolio going back before RightTail was founded was kind of in uh, that early COVID period where, as you remember, lots of great businesses were down, you know, maybe 40 or 50 percent. And as long as you continue to believe that, you know, the company had a good enough balance sheet to get to the other side and a good management team and really good processes. Um, that was that was the time in particular where having that that library and that past knowledge accumulated um, really presented us with an opportunity to, you know, act quickly and make some really good investments at that time.
0: In your response, you mentioned valuation. Uh, I know from reviewing your presentation material that you you compare potential IRRs across the portfolio. I'm also curious about valuation methods you use. Do you, are you using are you using discounted cash flows? Are you using multiples analysis? Like how are you how are you calculating in uh, like a, some kind of intrinsic value that that allows you to calculate an IRR?
1: Sure, sure. So. I do look at multiples. I do look at discounted cash flows as well. I also try to uh, break down um, a company's IRR almost into you know some very simple bond math. So I'll look at three different components. One will be uh, the cash earnings yield of the business so kind of the the inverse of of the company's multiple. And then for the growth component, of that of that cash earning stream, I'll think about a how fast could this company grow if it were not reinvesting at all? And so, you know, a couple of interesting case studies to think about there might be a company that already has either a network built or you know a certain set of advantages that they they can raise price a little bit each year, or the market is growing and they already they're already kind of entrenched. So maybe. A Visa Mastercard or a Moody's or something like that can can grow parts of their business without even necessarily needing to reinvest. Um, and then the second bucket would would be what we spent some time talking about is how much can the company reinvest uh, in terms of growth and at what rates of return can they can they reinvest? And so, you know, let's say they could invest, uh, you know, a hundred bucks a year at a twenty percent return. That would suggest that they're creating twenty dollars of value each year, and then capitalize that twenty dollars at a certain number, as a percentage of the company's overall market cap, will give you a third number that you could add to think about: a) the cash earnings yield; b) how fast is the company growing without reinvestment, and then, and then c). Um, how much value are they creating each year uh, from reinvestment? So you know maybe you'll get five percent bucket A, five percent bucket B, five percent bucket C, and add those up and and be able to approximate. Hey, this seems like you know a fifteen percent IRR or a five year double is a possibility here.
0: And would you use a DCF as kind of a sanity check on that um, as well, or multiples as a sanity check on those IRRs to make sure that? you know, what would like kind of reverse engineering, what would the numbers have to look like for you to be able to actually hit that kind of IRR?
1: Sure. Sure. Um, yeah. So the way the multiples in the DCF, one way that that they'll really come into play is that I'm probably not going to invest in a lot of businesses where the current multiple is extremely high. So let's say, you know, in that that bond math example that, You know, that first bucket was like 1% because the multiple was a hundred times, but maybe we still felt like the company was creating a ton of value each year. Well, thinking through the current multiple or thinking through the DCF, um, you know, I, am probably going to be very, very wary that the ability for us to make a great return at those multiples is really there, um, so that's that's one way that you know I will use it as a as a sanity check but typically you know I I want to find in most environments businesses that I think can double in you know 5 years if not faster last year uh, during certain parts of you know the market turmoil there were there were times where I felt like I was finding you know potential 3 or 4 year doubles and and obviously uh, those are great you know when when the numbers start to look even more attractive and the other thing i'd add too is you know, i typically want to hold businesses for at least several years at a time and so i kind of i kind of go into it thinking you know hey you know i'm planning to be patient here and i want to let these excellent companies continue to create value for all of retail investors and one thing I've learned over time is is for a new name to enter the portfolio, I really don't want it to be replacing the last name, or whether that's the fifteenth name or the twelfth name or whatever. I don't want to have that sort of incremental thinking. I really want to be able to, you know, make a case to you and to myself that hey, I think I think this business can fit into at least the top half of the portfolio. Um, And, and if I do that, I feel like it gives me a bit of a greater margin of safety helps me focus, you know, my time and energy on the right types of opportunities that, that will, you know, pay off for our investors.
0: Yeah. So the hurdle rates, not replacing the last stock in the portfolio. It's like, this should be a, if I'm going to own anything, it should be a top, you know, top five position kind of mentality.
1: Exactly, exactly. And that's, that's just something that i found, you know, helps me over time, and has worked well for me. And earlier in my career, the times when um, I would maybe, you know, make that sort of incremental replacement that we're describing, a, it might lead me to, you know, selling a business that whose stock had performed well, and and maybe I got, you know, too anchored to a price target or something like that. Um, and then and then B, I also recognize that you know sometimes when um, when I'm doing work on a new name, um, you know it's it's fun work and it's easy to get excited about a new position you know, a new position to the portfolio. Right. and you know I want to remove as much of that emotion as possible and uh, and and not necessarily feel like it's just replacing uh, you know or a little bit better than, than maybe something towards the bottom of the
0: portfolio. So you, we've talked a little bit about portfolio construction. Uh concentration is a topic that we've discussed on this podcast at length. I would love to understand what concentration means for you personally and how that's reflected in your portfolio construction.
1: Sure, sure. Uh so today righttail owns around 15 names. Um, you know, my guess will be, you know, when we're talking 10 years from now, that, you know, most of that time period, right tail will have owned somewhere between 10 and 15 names or something like that. Um and to me, concentration is great because um, you know it really allows for when you do good work and make good investments to really have those investments can have um, a punchy impact on the overall uh, return of the portfolio. Uh, so that's number one. I think it's also great from you know a time standpoint and really focusing on the best ideas and and doing the maintenance work on uh, some of the best ideas, which. Which for me, somewhere in that ten to fifteen range, um, tends to feel really appropriate. And then I also want to do that with as little risk as possible, um, which for me means you know I spend a lot of time just making sure that uh, we have a fair amount of diversification within the portfolio. So you know you'll never see Rightel have you know fifteen names in one industry or split between two industries or something like that. Um, And, and part of that is just that, look, you know, I know that not every investment is going to work out uh, the way that I think it might um, on, you know, day one. And uh, so having, having a bit of diversification, uh, you know, still in a, in a concentrated portfolio uh, makes a ton
0: of sense. And you, when you're, when your previous responses, you mentioned patience. So you want to own something for several years. I'm interested in how you handle situations in which, you know, you own something for a while and it's quote unquote not working. Right. And so how do you balance that? Hey, I want to be patient. I have a long term view. My thesis hasn't been validated with like something is not working what do I do? Do you, do you double down and do more research? Do you, what's the, how do you, how do you, how do you avoid having like, you know, something just languishing in the portfolio at the 15th position, as opposed to, you know, trying to get it up and out, up or out basically.
1: Sure. Sure. So, so each time, each time that I make an investment, um, I really want to think through ways that, that the investment may not go well. Um, and and I find that you know having you know having a bit of candor you know around some reasons why the position may not work out uh, can be really helpful later in the process because like you said you know there are always going to be some stocks that aren't doing well in the portfolio for whatever reason so so you know doing a bit of a pre mortem there uh, is very helpful oftentimes but then when those moments arrive. I just try really hard to, you know, think through, you know, Hey, is the stock not working, but the reasons why I made the investment still there and maybe, maybe the company's performing well, but the multiple has gone down for some reason. Um, You know, in that case, I might be more likely to either add to the position or hold on. If, if through additional work and thinking and conversations um, with folks in the industry and things like that, I, I then start to think that, hey, you know maybe something about the original thesis has broken. There I'm often going to elect to move on from the position. Um, and you know, for me, and you know, there are a lot of different ways to invest, obviously. Um, but I've just found that the times when I am honest and can kind of say, you know what, the, the thesis is broken here. It's often better for me to move on and to concentrate my energy on the remaining portfolio and finding that next great idea than to feel like you know i I need to to you know prove the original thesis right on you know that that uh, that investment or whatever the case might be. So I, I try to just have very little ego around it and to approach each you know situation objectively. And to recognize that, you know, these businesses, uh, you know, don't don't know whether, you know, whether Retail owns them or not. And there are always going to be a lot of opportunities out there.
0: I'm interested in how you settled on 10 to 15 stocks versus 5 to 10 or 20 to 25. What in your personal journey and your evolution led you to get to 10 to 15? as being a number that you feel really comfortable with in terms of the level of concentration.
1: Sure. Um, in terms of why not hire, you know, I've worked at, you know, I, you know, I was fortunate that after Harvard Business School, I worked at T. Rowe Price, which was a, a great firm and and just lots of really thoughtful investors um, and investors with different investment styles. And, you know, there um, a more concentrated fund might have 100 or 150 positions in it. And then some of the more diversified funds might have 300 names or something like that. So, you know, on on the extreme end, I always knew that 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 was that felt like a little bit of a too high number uh, for me. And a lot of the time while I was at T Row, I was investing in my personal account and and uh really enjoying that process. And that that 10 to 15 number always kind of felt natural. And then since T Row, I've worked at other firms that have maybe Owned fewer positions, uh, you know, maybe it was sometimes twenty to thirty, or or you know, sixty names in a portfolio, or something like that. And those sorts of numbers still felt um, a a little a little too big and a little too spread out to me, um, both in terms of the return impact that an individual name could have, um, also uh, in terms of just getting spread maybe a little too thin in terms of the maintenance work on those names. Um, so so that, that kind of, you know, those experiences kind of helped me, uh, you know, sort of narrow it down to, you know, a number that's maybe more in the 10 to 15 range. And I don't want to necessarily be too precise there, you know, maybe there'll be a time where there will be nine excellent companies in the portfolio or something like that. Um, and in terms of why not something like five um to me that that maybe feels like a bit too much concentration and just and again just kind of knowing you know hey as as much work as i do on any name and and you know recognizing that over time we'll continue to improve and and get better as investors i still know i'm going to make a lot of mistakes and so you know i want to have i want to be concentrated enough where those names have a punchy impact um, but I also don't want to be so concentrated that, you know, when one position inevitably goes down 30, 40, 50% that, um, it has a huge impact on the portfolio, um, or potentially, um, impacting, you know, my emotions and, and my ability to kind of focus on, uh, optimizing the portfolio for great long-term success.
0: We talked about sell discipline a little bit, and that's a you know kind of a topic of of your letters as you talk about sell discipline. So let's say something we talked about: what happens when a business isn't working? Let's talk, let's flip it and say something is working. So in in that situation, how would the quality of business impact if you're willing to sell a stock as it approaches or even exceeds your estimate of intrinsic value? Great question. So the the
1: quality of the business
0: will definitely
1: have an impact. And typically, that's something I will think about um, quite a lot. So I I mentioned in my last investor letter, uh, where I was talking about the home builder, MVR. And, you know, I, MVR is a company that I fully expect over time to have uh, more market share. Uh, But I also know that housing can be a very cyclical industry, and that, not all times in the housing industry are rosy. And there are certainly, uh, you know, challenges for that industry now and and during most times. And so uh, a business that maybe has more cyclicality to it or um, for some reason um, I might feel is on the lower end of the quality side. um, Those are those are going to be ones that, you know, I might think a little bit harder about what is what is this position size look like or, Um, How much might we allow uh, that business to compound over time? But in general, to your point, I really do want to just be as patient as possible and own high quality businesses and, and let them and their management teams just continue to create value for us.
0: And do you have set position sizes? I mean, 15, 12 to 15 names, we're talking, you know, whatever, six to eight and a half percent positions. Like, are there what are there specific ones? Like, you're gonna have a you're gonna have a fifteen and ten and a five. Like, is, how did how do you think about though? Like, as especially as something that maybe has done well and you're gonna trim it, where does that go down to, in terms of the lowest position weighting? Sure,
1: sure. So, on the first part of your question, I have generally lean towards equal weighting positions um, over time. Now. Today, if you look at the portfolio, some of the larger positions are around 10%. And then there are some smaller ones that are maybe around 4% or so. Um, but, but in my mind, I kind of think of it as, you know, hey, there are a lot of positions in that kind of five to 8% range. And, and again, you know, the, the ones that, you know, I think have better return potential, they might be, you know, on the bigger side. Um, but also I don't want to be, too precise about it um, either. Uh, So that's kind of the way I think about it, um, especially on the front end in terms of, you know, it sounded like maybe your question was around trimming or after a company has done well, where does it go? Um, That's always going to be on on a very case by case basis. And, you know, what I think about kind of the future um, return
0: potential for that investment. Got it. Got it. And you mentioned in NVR, and when we first chatted, you mentioned how surprised you were that home builders, one of which you own, which is an NVR, had done so well in the past year. You know, what did that, you know, especially when the housing market looked like it was going to be very troublesome for probably, to, you know, it could look maybe 18 months or longer. So what did that experience drive home to you about the value of trying to predict what's going to do well in the short run?
1: Sure. You know, that's, that's a good example but just you know, just one example of of you know a lesson that I feel like I've I've kind of learned and, and seen many times in my career, um and and yeah I just try I just try not to you know have big macro views. I, I obviously want to be aware of what's going on and and how you know certain certain events or certain challenges might impact uh, the companies that I own. Um, but beyond that. I, I don't want to be, you know, a big macro prognosticator um, just because I think it's, you know, it's incredibly hard um, to, you know, make those predictions and and make them accurate. And so during parts of last year, you know, NBR had, had probably gotten down to, I don't know, $3,500 per share or, you know, $4,000 per share. And yeah, you know, I remember. I remember penciling out that I thought even in a a pretty bad case, you know, maybe not like a great financial crisis type of case, but in a in a you know a a, a nice slowdown for the housing industry, I thought that you know the company could probably earn three hundred fifty to four hundred dollars per share or, or something like that for a company that has a lot of advantages and um, incremental returns on capital, typically above thirty percent and. So that, that, those were some things I thought through that, you know, just kind of helped, uh, uh, you know, helped me to kind of think longer term, uh, in that situation. And, you know, I wouldn't have guessed 12 months ago that NVR might be one of the better, uh, performing stocks, uh, in the portfolio this year. Um, but you know, that's kind of, that's kind of the way things go sometimes. And, you know, if, if I have a portfolio that has, um, you know, twelve to fifteen bets that you know have have uh you know different different exposures and different you know different uh things that that could help the company over time. Then, um, you know, I want to I want to be around and uh, you know, let that let that serendipity and that value creation
0: uh, take hold. And we've talked about NVR. You also mentioned O'Reilly. Uh, you have a few. Case studies in your investment presentation. I'm interested if I asked you what the quintessential right tail stock would be. What 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 comes to mind? And you know, love a quick overview of how that fits with this quality at a discount strategy.
1: Sure, sure. Um, You know, in 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 a lot in a lot of ways. uh, You know, I don't I don't necessarily want to be tied to any one company. um, You know, and and kind of along the way that I I think about concentration and whatnot. Uh, but I'd be happy to talk about O'Reilly a bit um, and and some of the characteristics that I do think, you know, have made it uh, a great, you know, investment for right tail over time. Uh, you know, the first time I invested was actually early in COVID. And I forget exactly, I want to say the stock had maybe gone from 400 or $450 a share down the yeah, $250 or $300 per share. Um, and I had admired the way the company was run and that they tended to be longer term in nature. Um, for some of the listeners who maybe don't know, um, O'Reilly is an auto parts retailer. Um, and one thing that's unique is from each of their stores, they basically serve two customers. They serve do it yourself folks like you and me that might want to make a repair on our cars, and they also serve mechanics. Um, and both of those customers, especially mechanics, they really want to find the right part and to get it as quickly as possible. And there's a whole host of reasons why the mechanics might want that. You know, They want to keep their customers happy. The car insurance companies who might be actually paying for the repair work um, they realize they'll be able to keep their customers happy and hopefully keep their customers for longer um, if they're able to get that repair done quickly. And so O'Reilly really invests a lot in their distribution capabilities and their supply chain um, to have uh, the best selection of inventory. Um, and they they you know they're they're very specific about what inventory they carry in certain markets based on, the cars that consumers own in those markets, and then and then to just um, you know have the right parts and to have knowledgeable professionals working those stores um, that can help the customer find the right part. Um, and and so what you know the service they provide is is uh, is pretty unique. Um, they certainly have a lot of advantages um, in terms of their systems. Um, their capital, their breadth of inventory relative to mom and pops that over the long term have been uh, a source of supply gains. Um, though they've also been able to typically grow faster than some of their larger uh, public competitors, like an advanced auto parts or something like that. So, um, you know, those are some things that the company does well and how the company is positioned. In terms of the management team, a lot of these folks have, have been there for 20 years or longer than the new CEO, Brad Beckham, who's coming in, um, started uh, at O'Reilly shortly after high school and has worked through several different portions of the business over time. And, and uh, you know, his story is not necessarily unique just in terms of that that long-term approach they take to their employees and training and things of that nature. And so... Um, you know, that was three and a half years ago that I invested for the first time. And the company has continued to, to perform really well. Uh, the The whole COVID experience and how difficult supply chains became for a lot of companies probably allowed them to take share even faster. And, you know, maybe maybe with the exception of that initial investment, During a lot of a lot of times that I've owned O'Reilly, or a lot of that time period, um, the the stock I would not say has necessarily traded at the the cheapest multiple, and and so you know it's it's one reason why um, you know O'Reilly is a good right tail investment to talk about because you know during a lot of that period maybe the multiple was somewhere between eighteen and twenty two times earnings, maybe even a bit higher than that. but again, through thinking through some of those opportunities of how the business could grow over time and the benefits that came from opening new stores and opening new distribution centers and things of that nature uh, have really led to a lot of value creation for shareholders.
0: If I think about your strategy, the the, the risk, I, the main risk I think you have is that you find businesses with high historical returns on capital, right? And you find them at a decent multiple the risk is that the incremental returns are not as high as you think. And the markets with buys is telling you something when it's trading at a whatever sub-SP multiple. Anything that you do to try to protect yourself from investing in businesses where the incremental returns are are declining or not as high and you know probably end up being value traps over time.
1: yeah, uh, you, you highlight a uh you know a very uh real and possible risk, Ben. Uh so for sure, that's something I think about a lot um I I don't want to say that there's like you know one thing that um you know that that I do that I think avoids that and over time, you know, I likely you know will invest in businesses that end up being value traps um but but studying the history of those companies, um, studying what has led to stronger incremental returns so I'm probably a little less likely to invest in a business where, the returns have already been declining quite a bit. Um, you know, so that, that's one thing that I'll look out for. Um, and then I just try to think through, okay, you know, what's going on in in the industry, what advantages has this company built over time? And are those advantages, you know, getting weaker, staying the same or getting stronger and then constantly, you know, doing that maintenance work and, um, Listening to what the companies are saying, reading their filings, talking to folks in the industry. And ultimately, there, there's uh there's certainly a part of investing, uh, or at least the way I do it, that that um involves a fair amount of art versus science. And, you know, it it ultimately parts of it are going to come down to a bit of a judgment call of, of hey, you know, what do we think is is really going on here?
0: This season of compounders is sponsored by Deluba. Delupa was founded by a former hedge fund analyst to bring simplicity to the investment process. Delupa offers an AI driven single source for all company reported data and allows for investment teams to make the most informed decisions in the shortest amount of time. For more information, please visit delupacom compounders. And the other th- risk I would see in your strategy, if, if, you know, if I were putting capital work in it is, you know, the ability for you you know, a small team, you know, a, the ability to cover the entire universe of stocks that you could look at. So I'm interested in how you schedule your time and, and structure your days and your quarters so that you can balance the new idea generation with the maintenance that's required on those 12 to 15 names or 10 to 15 names.
1: Sure. Uh, and you're absolutely right. Both both maintenance work and working on new ideas are incredibly important. Um you know, I I try to structure my days where uh you know I find that I'm more productive in the morning so I tend to do you know kind of more uh research and kind of deeper reading and thinking uh, a little bit more in the mornings um and then most weeks will likely have uh both maintenance and work on new names and um, I don't have an exact number of new names that I want to work on each week or each month I would say normally it's probably at least one to three new names per week and on the, it can easily be on the lower end if you know working on a new name kind of leads to more work because um there seems like there could be some you know really interesting investment potential there
0: got it and what what's the what's the sign that something should come you know, kind of off the bench and, 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 or maybe I don't know what the right metaphor is, but something, what, what, what gets you interested to say like, this, this is something that I, I've spent X amount of time on, and this makes sense to spend another, you know, 10, 20, 30 hours on what, what kind of characteristics are you looking for?
1: Sure. Well, I, you know, I'd love to, um, I'd love to think that, you know, a potential new position, would have uh, a higher return potential than, uh, you know, certainly the media name in the portfolio or something like that. So as, as the return potential appears to be there either because, you know, maybe the stock price has gone down or I have a better appreciation for um, the reinvestment potential of the business. Um, that could be something, you know, where it's, where um you know I'm I'm kind of thinking, hey, we need to do a lot more work here uh to you know go through any any questions I'm worried about or parts of the business I don't necessarily understand that well. Um but that that would be the most important thing. And then the second thing would be, you know, hey, um is there something a little different about you know this business or this industry uh that that you know might be Additive to the overall portfolio, or, or um, you know, increase the diversification while also having uh, a great amount of upside potential within
0: within the confines of a concentrated portfolio. And you talk about the anticipation that you're going to make mistakes, and that's a reason why you're not you don't own five stocks. Um, I'd love an example of an, a mistake that has meaningfully impacted the way you invest now.
1: Sure. Sure. Uh, the first one, the first one that comes to mind that has been one of the biggest learnings is, you know, when I joined Tiro price in 2010, um, you know, there, there weren't a lot of analysts and portfolio managers who had left Tiro coming out of the, the great financial crisis. You know, I think during that time, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of my colleagues appropriately, you know, saw T Rowe as as a great company and um, you know, a great place to build a career. And so, um, when I got there, there were there were fewer industries left to cover, and I was very open minded in terms of what I wanted to cover. Um, I was I was hoping it wouldn't be something uh, incredibly macro sensitive, and uh, and and lo and behold, it ended up being small cap metals and mining. So, not just metals and mining, uh, but also small cap, where a lot of these companies did not even have a mine in operation. And the budget to build one mine uh, was often larger than the current enterprise value of the business. So, you know, it led to these management teams always trying to raise money and to tell um, an attractive story about, you know, why this company deserved investors capital. And so I remember, you know, I, I tried my hardest and I had a lot of, you know, a lot of great experiences being able to visit mines in different parts of the world and met a lot of interesting people along the way. Um, and I would try to invest in some of the higher quality, uh, small cap metals and mining, mining companies. Um, but ultimately realized a lot of it was really a macro call. Um, I realized, you know, I wasn't very good at investing in those types of situations. And I was probably, you know, more of a weaker hand uh, at the table. And, you know, I also realized that a lot of times that that these projects that companies are investing in, um, typically they're communicating, you know, what I would consider to be like the, the best case um, outcome and maybe not, you know, the the base case outcome. And uh, so it was great to have some of those learnings, uh, you know, kind of earlier in my career and, and, and make some of those mistakes. And, you know, it, that's one of the experiences I can think of that, you know, just kind of helped me realize that, you know, the best way to align my skill set and my temperament um, to produce great investment results is to focus more on studying higher quality businesses versus businesses that, um, you know, maybe don't have as much control over their own destiny.
0: Sure. That is such an interesting place to start <laughs> um, a, a career in, in, in investing. That's a wonderful story. So, I mean, you mentioned working at, at TRO and you've worked at some large firms that have been able to attract institutional investors is that something you aspire to incorporate in the future of Tail? Great,
1: great question, Ben. You know, I I think a lot more about um, just the overall quality of the investors. And I try to spend a lot of time um, with investors and, and early conversations of just trying to make sure that we're all kind of playing for the same thing, you know, which which for me is, you know, I want to have, uh, you know, excellent, sustainable returns over longer periods of time. And so I really want to find investors who similarly think longer term. Um, and, and that can be, you know, an investor of, you know, any shape or size. And if it ends up that, you know, over time that Righttail finds some institutions that think similarly, um, that could be amazing um but also you know i have uh, i'm very fortunate to have uh, 40 awesome investors today and uh it's been a really uh interesting mix each relationship uh is really important to me uh roughly 25 to 30% of my investors are other professional investors who you know do this on a day-to-day basis and and again i think you know understand what i'm trying to do um and so that's fantastic Uh, you know, roughly a third of my investors have added to their investment, you know, during the, you know, kind of year and a half or so that Rytale has been investing. Uh, so that's been, uh, fantastic. Um, and so, yeah, each, each investor is important. And if I, if I continue to do a good job of, you know, putting smiles on people's faces and, and producing good investment returns, um, then over time, you know, I, I, um, You know, I think things will kind of work out the way they're supposed to.
0: So you're about a year and a half in. I'm interested in what you think success would look like if we're having the same conversation seven years from now. What would would be your idea of success in terms of founding and building Right Tail?
1: Sure, sure. A lot of it comes down to just producing great returns. Um, you know, I think that will be one thing that will really uh, keep investors happy. Um, you know, I do aspire to have great relationships, uh, with each of my investors. So, um, you know, if I can be helpful in other ways in addition to, uh, producing good returns, then, um, you know, I'd love to do that. And I love, you know, kind of the relationship. So, you know that that's really what it all comes down to um and you know I recognize that that you know I I'm I'll be spending a lot of time with anyone who's connected uh to right tail and um so you know I really want to just spend my time with you know other thoughtful and and you know really kind of deep down you know good people and um and uh you know that'll be uh incredibly you know fun and satisfying, hopefully for all of us.
0: And is having a team a goal? I mean, putting together a team of analysts and having, you know, the whole, you know, the, with something that looks more like a traditional investment firm versus, you know, kind of like you you know, wh- where you are in startup mode.
1: It's something I think about a lot and have thought about a lot over the years. Uh, my best sense is that I think right tail will always be five people or less. And, you know, we could be talking in seven years, and it and it may just be me. And so I, I think as, um, you know, as the business reaches different stages, I'll, I'll always try to approach it, you know, from the perspective of, you know, hey, would it be kind of a win for everyone involved? If um rightdale's team were to expand, you know, first and foremost, would it be a win for our investors? And the two the two roles that I I could see um you know potentially being most likely, you know, one might be uh you know a junior analyst that I could work with uh you know hopefully hopefully mentor and uh you know have an opportunity to uh you know listen to this person's um perspective on Current investments in the portfolio, and to do some of that maintenance work together. Uh, potentially also look for for new ideas together. Um, I, I see myself as always being, you know, first and foremost an analyst and very uh, deeply involved in the analytical work. So I don't, I, I'm less interested in someone who, um, you know, is is just kind of sourcing ideas, you know, uh, individually or something like that. So that would be one role. Another role might be um, someone who could wear several different hats. So maybe a, a Jack or Jane of all trades who um, could help with some operations and, um, you know, maybe uh, signing up new investors and things like that. All of which have been, you know, really fun roles and, and good learning experience that I've enjoyed so far. And if if we do get to that point one day, um, I'll also appreciate both, both in terms of being able to work with other potential right tail colleagues, but also in conversations with investors to, you know, be able to, you know, say, hey, you know, I um, you know, I was very involved as we, you know, set up the first 40 investors or whatever, whatever the number uh, you know, ends up being. So uh so it's all been a lot of fun and and a good learning experience.
0: Well Jeremy, we've covered a lot uh throughout this podcast. So we're gonna close with a question we are asking all of our manager guests. Which is what is the most underappreciated aspect of the investing opportunity set you're pursuing at Right Tail?
1: Sure. I think I think the most the most underappreciated aspect is just that this um this philosophy of wanting to own higher quality businesses for the long term uh is much more harder, uh it's much harder to execute than than maybe it sounds when it's kind of put very simply and you know i I have the wiring and the experience uh, to give Rytale the best odds uh, to be able to produce great investment results. And one of the things that um, you know I, I find inspiring in, in a lot of ways is that I often get asked, well what's what's your new you know most favorite idea? I've heard you talk about Ferguson before or whatever the case might be. And a lot of the times, you know my answer is just, you know, hey, I still, I still own the same companies. You know, there, there are some new ones that I'm thinking about, um, but a lot of times it's it's owning the same ones. And and so to me, you know, those questions and and they're very sincere, and I I appreciate all of them. Um, but to me, it it kind of highlights that um, you know having this longer term perspective is um, is more unique and tougher to execute then I think, you know, maybe it sounds when, you know, it's stated on paper or, uh, discussed very simply.
0: Jeremy, this has been great. Thank you so much for being on compounders. Uh, It's great hearing about the whole journey that you've been on over the last year and a half. And, um, you know, we're going to be watching your career closely over time. So thanks for this, this, uh, thanks for the time.
1: Thank you very much, Ben have really enjoyed it, man. And, uh, it's, uh, it's been a fun discussion and look forward to continuing to be in touch with you.
0: Wonderful. So you mentioned uh, Visa, MasterCard, and Moody's. Do you own any of those companies? I do own Moody's today. You talked about Ferguson. Is that a stock you own as well?
1: Ferguson is a,
0: a stock I own as well. In this podcast, Jeremy discussed a number of securities, including Visa, MasterCard, Moody's, and Ferguson. I do not own any of those stocks. In addition, I also do not own O'Reilly or NVR.